Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. So today's episode is a Q&A, and let's get right into it. Most of these questions are coming from text and a few from Instagram. So let's start with the questions directly from you on text. All right. So Mark asks, what do you think about Larry Elder and his bid to oust Gavin Newsom as governor of California? So I haven't paid attention to this too much. I've known about Larry Elder for a long time. And I've respected and admired a lot of the things that he has to say, especially about race. He's a really fierce debater, uh, not someone you want to be on, on the wrong side of a debate with. And I agree with his criticisms of Gavin Newsom's handling of, of COVID policy in California, which has been, I think, too, too draconian, too alarmist in, in many cases at the expense of small businesses there. And of course, uh, the hypocrisy of, of Gavin Newsom being caught not obeying his own COVID policy by running up a huge bill and having a party with, without masks and with strangers is, is a really horrible look as a governor. That said, I can't say I know what Larry Elder's total platform is. And my guess is that I would have some serious disagreements with it if I, if I knew all of it. But I, I can't really speak on that further. Okay, so this one from Jonathan. Do you think a lot of the divide between people who want to, quote, undo the wrongs of history and people who simply want to improve modern issues in the black community, such as education, etc., is just the divide between deontology and utilitarianism? So what Jonathan is, is asking here is, is the difference between someone like myself who thinks undoing the wrongs of slavery and Jim Crow, reversing the effects of history is, is naive, and someone who thinks that's precisely what we should be trying to do with our policy today? Is that just an example of the difference between someone who, who is a deontologist and someone who's a utilitarian? These are two different moral philosophies, one of which says in, in a nutshell, that you should come up with rules of thumb that are good and follow them. And that's what it means to do good in the world. And one that says whether an action is good is a function of its consequences. So you have to judge, you know, you you can't just follow these hard rules of thumb and ignore the consequences. I'm not sure that, you know, I actually don't think the disagreement between someone like myself and and Tanahasi Coates on reparations is just an example of that difference between deontology and, and utilitarianism. I think you could probably arrive at either one of those opinions with either one of those philosophies, depending on on how you slice it. You know, so for instance, if you had some deontological rule like you should always pay reparations to a group of people that are wronged by the government, no matter how many 
generations separated from the crime you are. You know, if that's your deontological rule, then then you can arrive at a pro-reparation stance. But you could have a different deontological rule that said something like, don't pay reparations past the parent-child relationship. In other words, historical crimes, you know, the debt expires after this many reparations and that's uh, after this many generations. And that's a hard and fast rule that would get you to oppose reparations for slavery, for instance. And likewise, depending on how you see the consequences of race-conscious policy, you could probably arrive at both positions from a utilitarian mindset. Okay, next question from text. This is from Nikki. Have you ever meditated while under the influence of psychedelics? Nikki has two questions. And how has your societal notoriety affected your friendships, if at all? So first question, yeah, I've done psychedelics. I've done LSD and, and mushrooms and MDMA sometimes counts as a psychedelic. And salvia I did once. And um, I've meditated on MDMA and shrooms. And I think it's a great thing to do if you already know how to meditate. It's much easier to do on MDMA because your mind isn't clouded by psychedelic craziness. Where on mushrooms, my experience has been that it feels like I'm having the epiphany of a lifetime, by which I mean the kind of epiphany you may only have once or twice in your life every two seconds, which is pretty overwhelming and a little bit of a missed opportunity because if you're having what feels like an epiphany every two seconds, it's very hard to actually take those lessons back into your sober life. That's been my experience on shrooms. And for me, mushrooms and LSD are just, they're too dangerous for me to do on their own because I'm not at all good at keeping my mind from going into the, the dark recesses of a bad trip. Some people are just re- really good at that and others aren't. So yeah, I've meditated uh, under the influence of psychedelics and um, I, I recommend it if you've, both done psychedelics and meditation before. And as for the second question, how has my societal notoriety uh, affected my friendships, if at all? Not that much is the truth. You know, the thing is, my friends all know that I'm societally known to whatever degree I am. And many of them, probably most of them, have disagreements with a lot of my positions, especially on race, but those are arguments we've been having since before I was known. So, you know, if someone was friends with me as we were arguing and debating various topics, when I'm now known for having those same positions, it would be very weird of them to not be friends with me, right? They've known what I thought since long before I was ever a writer, in most cases, at least. So my friends that I've known for for years are a self-selected group of people that already liked me despite whatever disagreements they did or didn't have with me and that hasn't changed um and I and I continue to hope that it won't. So okay, next question. 
Do you think describing individuals as woke is too precise and polarizing? Could we use a higher order label like utopians to loosely couple shared ideologies with diverse motivations? So I don't have too strong an opinion on this. I think most people sort of know what you mean when you say woke. Utopian Utopian is another very useful word. It's one I use actually a lot. I mean, there, there are all these cases in which people have totally unrealistic expectations for what's possible. For instance, the notion that you can train someone, you know, a psychologist or social worker to get on the streets of New York City and anytime a mentally ill homeless person is acting crazy, that they can be trained to just talk this person down or to persuade them to come to the hospital with no use of force reliably. That's utopian. That's a totally, that's, that's a perfect example of a case in which I would use the word utopian because you're just not accepting the, the practical and sad realities of the world that are very unlikely to change. In this case, the fact that mental illness in many cases is inscrutable and there's no magic combination of words that's going to reliably get a grown adult dealing with you know, perhaps paranoid schizophrenia to do what you want them to do. If you, if you guys listen to my podcast with Anthony Barksdale, the former deputy commissioner of the Baltimore Police Department, he told a story in which he was taking a mentally ill person to the hospital who and he had received a 911 call from a family member, I think. And it was going perfectly smoothly, no need to use force whatsoever, until all of a sudden, the police became dragons to this person. This is, it's delusional, it's, it's paranoid schizophrenia, it's borderline personality disorder, all kinds of mental illnesses can conspire to make it impossible to persuade a person to stop acting violently or to come to the hospital. And the notion that there is such a skill that could be trained into a professional is utopian. Right? Putting out fires is a skill. Do, doing surgery is a skill. And, and these are situations where, yes, each fire is different. Uh, yes, each body is different. But there are enough shared principles and, and, and so forth that you can actually train and become great at reliably doing a particular kind of surgery or reliably putting out fires. There's no such skill as reliably getting a, a mentally ill person simply by speaking words and using no force to do something that they really don't want to do and may, may be terrified of doing. So that's an example where th- there is something that's utopian and utopian is probably the better word to attack that idea with because it gets at precisely what's wrong with that idea. Whereas, you know, obviously that, that idea is woke as well, but woke is, is actually less useful a label to put on that idea because it it doesn't get to the root of the problem with it. So I think these are just different words that you should use in in different circumstances where appropriate and ultimately I think 
the labels, you know, it's not really up to us to decide which labels stick. I think the labels stick when there is a recognizable phenomenon happening. And the reason woke has stuck is because there is a recognizable phenomenon happening and woke, you know, in the, in the, in the competition of all the memes to describe it, woke was the one that, that naturally won out. Okay. Next question. This is from Nick. I know you guys debated and have had a civil dialogue, but does it at all frighten you that Rakim is, he's talking about Rakim Brooks um, from the ACLU along with the rest of the ACLU is overly partisan and actually seeks to demonize the other side of the political spectrum on a pretty routine basis. Do you ever see that changing? So I, I agree that ACLU has really lost a lot of its credibility on, on many different issues. And that could be a conversation for another time. I can't agree with the criticism of Rakim because I haven't, you know, my only interaction of him with him has been the conversation we had in public and, and one conversation in private. I found him to be um, a very reasonable and um, agreeable conversation partner despite our disagreements. So I can't, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what Nick is referring to here with his, uh, Rakim's alleged incivility. So I'll just pass on that one. Okay. So let me take a question now from Instagram. This question is coming from John. John asks, what are your thoughts on the veil of darkness study done by Stanford? Okay, so this is, a, this is a really great question. To get everyone up to speed, the Veil of Darkness study is, uh, was a study released a few months ago, I believe, by, by Stanford. And it, wa- it set out to measure the extent of racial profiling in traffic stops. And the way it did this was very clever. It, it assumed that policemen can't, see the driver as well when it's dark outside, but can see the driver when it's light out. So obviously now the extent to which the police can see the driver's race is now a variable that can be used in order to compare the amount of stops uh, police make when they can tell the driver's race to the, the amount of stops they, they make when they can't. So there's sort of a colorblind condition when it's dark out and a color conscious condition when it's light out. And there's actually one study done like this in the mid 2000s that was done on a smaller scale. It was, it was, they only used the Oakland city uh, police department data, but this study used, I think data from almost, was it almost a hundred million traffic stops or something, something uh, re- really extensive so, and they were very careful in this study. This was a, this was really a well done study. Unfortunately, it was cited as knockdown evidence of the systemic racism narrative. The idea that, you know, it's a driving while black is, you know, impossible in this country. And, you know, we're getting constantly pulled over by the cops in unjustified ways. But it's worth actually looking at what the study says in, in detail to get the picture of what's going on here. So right off the bat, they have data from over 30 
or over 20 states and over 30 municipalities, um, millions and millions of, of, of points of data here. And what they found is, is, is to begin that the overall rate, uh, the per capita stop rate for black drivers is 0.10 compared to 0.7 for white drivers and 0.5 for Hispanic drivers. So what that means is out of 100 black people, if you ask them, have you been pulled over in the last year, 10 of them raise their hands and say yes. Out of 100 white people, seven of them raise their hand and say yes. And out of 100 Hispanics, five raise their hand. So, I mean, one interesting thing to note here is that white drivers are more likely to get pulled over than Hispanics in general. And then the second thing to note is that the differences between all three groups are actually very small to begin with um, relative to, you know, say the difference, differences in crime rates. So that's one thing to notice about the study right off the bat. Uh, that is unlikely to make it into the news analysis of the study. And then we get to the more interesting part, which is how the actual experiment turned out. So in the original version of the experiment in 2006, the, the study authors found, and I, th- I think the quote is little evidence for racial bias in police stops. But this study dismisses the earlier study as insufficiently large sample size. And uh, regardless, it has a much larger sample size here. So what they found is, is that, and they, they don't give numbers, but they give a, a fairly easy to read chart. When they compare the rate at which black drivers are stopped in the light condition to the rate at which they're stopped in the dark condition, they are more likely to be stopped when it's light out than when it's dark out. So that suggests uh, racial bias. And, and they were very careful about this because obviously there are other variables that could confound this analysis, such as time, right? You can't just compare who's getting stopped at 4 p.m. to who's getting stopped at 9 p.m. because it could be possible that, say, black people are much more likely to drive at 9 p.m. than at 4 p.m. And then time itself becomes a, a confounding variable. So what they did is they used data from the same time of day, from only around 7 p.m., and compared it at different times of the year when 7 p.m. is either light or dark to isolate the variable of time. So this is a very careful study. What they find is that there is a a very small amount of racial bias indicated here, but it's statistically significant. So what made it into the headlines is that there is racial bias. What didn't make it into the headline is just how small uh, an overall portion of the drivers stopped we're talking about. So based on the results of the study, say you have about 100 drivers pulled over in a given amount of time. When it's light out, 25 of that 100 are, are going to be black. When it's dark out, according to this study, about 22 of those drivers are going to be black. So you have a difference of three out of 25, right? Out of 25 black people pulled over, according to this study, three of them can say, I was pulled over 
where a white person in my identical condition probably would not have been. So obviously that's extremely annoying if you're, if you're one of those three. And police departments should absolutely have, as a part of their training, the habit of policing themselves for racial bias. Uh, whether the cops are white, black, Hispanic, or Asian, you know, it's, it's part of the job to be aware that you are capable of bias and you know, to always have that as one of your concerns about being an officer. I mean, that should absolutely be part of officer training. Um, at the same time, you know, we're talking about out of 25 black people pulled over in, in this hypothetical, three can say it was unjust and 22 have to say, well, yeah, that I was pulled over for totally normal reasons and a white person in my stead would also have been pulled over. So when you compare the amount of racial bias that a study like this finds, compared to the amount that is alleged to exist in society as a whole, there, there is a huge difference there. So, so this, is, this study is not knocked down evidence of the fact that you know, racial gaps are caused by racism and nothing else. What it really is evidence of is, is what I've always maintained, which is, yes, there is racial bias in society. There is racism. Uh, but there, there's not nearly enough to, for it to be the overwhelming or main cause or only cause of racially disparate outcomes. So that's really what the study suggests to me. And um, it's un- unfortunate that obviously it got reported as just yet another link in the long chain of evidence for the narrative that America is fundamentally white supremacist and systemically racist. And that is the only, that, that's the most important thing to know if you care about racial inequality or the socioeconomic and other progress of black Americans. Okay, so let's go on to the next question. You mentioned the role in Fryer study on racial disparities in police shootings often. It's my understanding that the study cites that a policeman is more likely to shoot a white person than a black person, but more likely to use non-lethal force on a black person. Doesn't this in some way cancel out the use of non-lethal force against blacks? As in, aren't many officers in that case shooting whites instead of using force? What about other studies in police shooting slash racial disparities? I haven't seen any of those talked about on your platform or other people outside of the mainstream left. So the first thing I would say is it's, you know, it's always tempting to draw more conclusions from a study than are actually warranted. None of these studies are complete or perfect. Most of what happens in an interaction or much of what happens can't be captured in a data set. It could only be captured with qualitative observations rather than quantitative ones. So I think this concept of scientism is, is useful. A, a study can't actually capture everything about an interaction that, that we care about um, or that might be morally relevant. I mean, this is why, you know, videos so often are important. Or simply being, you know, you, you find simply being someplace teaches you something that you couldn't have learned otherwise. So 
I don't know that we can infer that what an officer, what officers are doing is saying, okay, well, this is a white guy acting crazy and reaching for what looks like a gun. I can shoot him because he's white. If he's black, I wouldn't shoot him because I don't want to become the next, you know, insert the name of cop here that becomes the next national villain. Obviously that could be happening. That's totally plausible and maybe even rational from a, from a cop's point of view. Uh, a, a cop that is self-interested. But I'm, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion or say that it's directly implied by Roland Fryer's study. As for other studies, you can go to the piece I wrote for City Journal about a year ago called Stories and Data. I cite three different studies in that piece, one of which is the Fryer study. One of the studies I cited actually got retracted by the researcher. And this was kind of mysterious to me because there were no criticisms of the data he found, which did not suggest that there was racial bias in police shootings. So he retracted it without finding any problem with the data. He retracted it only because certain people were interpreting it in ways that he thought was wrong, which again happens with pretty much every study that's ever been done is that journalists interpret it in ways that the researchers probably would not sanction. So it really seemed to me like this was a case where uh, the researchers probably did not feel comfortable with the amount of people on the right or the cast or type of people on the right that were honestly citing their data or perhaps extrapolating, you know, extrapolating some conclusions from it somewhat. But, you know, this is a case where you shouldn't mistake the retraction of the study for the the data being void because there was no indication, even from the researchers themselves, that the data, data was wrong. Okay, so third question from Instagram. This is from Brian. Brian asks, what is my opinion on a progressive tax system? So this is a short one. I'm, I'm very much in favor of progressive taxation. Um, just, you know, broadly the idea that richer people should be taxed at higher rates makes sense to me. Certainly makes more sense than the idea that everyone is taxed at, at a flat rate or that, uh, you know, the poor are taxed more. You know, all the devil is completely in the details with taxation. It's, how progressive should it be? What should, what should we charge the highest income bracket? What can we charge the highest income bracket without there being negative consequences? You know, I think almost everyone would agree that, you know, like a a 90% taxation rate on people making above $300,000 might be excessive and um, might have some really uh, bad effects on the incentives to create wealth in the first place. On the other hand, you know, very few people are, are actually suggesting that kind of a tax rate. And there is a happy medium to be found between not taxing the rich at all or, or taxing everyone at the same rates and taxing the rich so much that there are, there are uh, negative consequences. I, I, sh- I certainly think the rich should be taxed more uh, th- than the poor and, th- and then the middle class. That's, that seems obvious to me. So let's get back to the questions from text. 
So Richard asks, what do you make of attempts to excuse responsibility for the criminal behavior of minorities through a denial of their personal agency? Yeah, so this is one of the ideas that most gets under my skin. You know, a lot of people, a lot of progressives will, you know, think they're being socially just by looking at a black person that commits a crime and saying, well, it's not his fault. You know, society conspired to force him in some way to commit that crime. How could he really have behaved differently? Given that he, that, you know, that, that he is battling against the winds of white supremacy, that there's a whole society tilted against him. I mean, this is, um, there are many problems with this. First and foremost, the vast majority of crimes committed by black people are against other black people. Usually black people from identically poor circumstances. Um, often the, the problem, especially of violent crime, as much as people want to simply blame it on poverty, there are lots of uh, groups of people that are poor today and throughout history that had virtually no crime. I think obviously poverty and a sense that there is no escape from one's circumstances does create the conditions for crime. But often it's just a way of life that gets passed on through the culture. And, and it has to be combated at that level. If you grow up in a circumstance where it's just normal as a, as a man to band together with a group of men you grew up near and make war with other groups of men in the neighborhood, try to control the most resources, what you're talking about in the grand scheme of things is not totally aberrant behavior for, for the human race, right? This is, in, in other contexts, to be able to do violence in that way is celebrated. And, and in, in some senses, what a lot of history has been for, for men in our species. So I think it's a mistake to, A, to say that there are, special societal circumstances that cause crime that we can eliminate. You know, it may just be, the truth may be the opposite. And this is where Steven Pinker's thesis in, in the better angels of our nature comes in, which is that violence is often the default state. You know, violence and sort of tribal warfare is in some sense what we're predisposed to do and what society does is it finds ways to disincentivize what would otherwise be pretty, pretty standard behavior. And obviously one of the ways of disincentivizing that is by reliably arresting people quickly for crimes they commit. You know, you have to take into account the fact that there are so many other people so many, the majority of people in high crime neighborhoods of color are not committing crime. They want to live safely. Like everyone, they want to be able to walk out on the street at night and not fear that they're going to get mugged or worse. And coming from the, 
the identical circumstances, how do you explain the difference between a person who chooses not to commit crime and a person who chooses to? You know, that, that's the root of the problem with the denial of agency to people of color uh, for committing crimes. Okay, so Richard's second question. He says, I'm a philosophy student taking a course next semester called Race and Racism. I suspect my heterodox points of view will land me as an outsider in the class. I also happen to be a straight white male. Do you have any advice for navigating controversial ideas in an environment where my voice is probably not welcome? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, this is a point John Stuart Mill made. It's, it's an unfortunate truth, but again, I'm not a utopian, so it's a practical truth. When you're voicing a, a controversial opinion that's not widely shared in the room that you're in, you have to bend over backwards to say it in the best possible way. Now, again, you shouldn't have to, but you do. And you should develop the skill. Part of this skill is stating the, the opposing view, stating the consens- consensus view in the room as well as you possibly can. In a way, you know, ideally stating it better than it's put by the people who disagree with you which shows you really understand what they're saying. You're not just, you're not, you're not just grandstanding on, on your own opinion. You really get the other side. And then stating your own opinion in a way that is the, the least controversial that it possibly could be stated while still remaining true. Right? Don't beat around the bush, but if you can use a synonym for a word that is that is less you know controversial or less likely to inflame bring your politician's hat to how you phrase things all of that is practical advice for how to be able to respect yourself by not self-censoring or lying but also to communicate your good intentions the problem is people will assume you have bad intentions if you are violating a conversational taboo. It doesn't matter to them that you know your intentions are good. But what this means is you have to do or you ought to do a little extra work to communicate that your intentions are good. Again, it's not fair, but life isn't fair. And this is, this is simply the reality of being an outlier in a group that wants to challenge uh, the consensus and also would prefer to remain in good standing with the people around him and not be cast out. All right, so next question. So the next question is from Kevin. So after the podcast with Michael Schellenberger, you stated essentially that Schellenberger misrepresented much of what mainstream climate scientists believe. I had read his book shortly after your podcast with him and listened to the interview with him. And I feel like you kind of misrepresented Schellenberger. I know you said you were going to have a more mainstream voice on, but my question is, would you be willing to moderate a debate between Schellenberger and someone? I, as a layperson, don't know enough to know if Schellenberger is misrepresenting facts, so I'd like to see him in a debate-like setting with another expert. Okay, so yeah, I would, I would love to do that. I, I do think 
you know, the, the way Michael Schellenberger talked about the extent to which climate change is affecting the intensity of storms is misleading. But I, I think he's a serious and, and genuine person, and I'm, I'd be happy to have him discuss all of these issues with a scientist. Um, I would be happy to sort of mediate that conversation, and I may actually do that. But just to give you a sense of what I thought was, you know, what I wish I had pushed back on more in the podcast, the, the notion that climate change is not exacerbating weather events is not at all mainstream among climate scientists. And the way Michael talked about this was that, or, or, or argued for this, was to say that because fewer people die from events like hurricanes and earthquakes and, and, and the like, um, therefore, climate change is not exacerbating the death toll of weather events. That seems to me like a, a very misleading way to describe what's going on here. Because what's going on, insofar as I under, understand it, is that climate change is making the worst hurricanes, for instance, worse, right? It's, it's intensifying these storms um, su- such that we're going to get, you know, every year we're going to get more superstorms than we would get if, we, if, if the earth wasn't heating because of the greenhouse gas effect. That seems to me to be the mainstream consensus. Now, what's, what's been happening at the same time is the, the entire world has undergone an infrastructure update such that any particular storm kills less people because of societal infrastructure and wealth. So these are just two countervailing forces. These are two forces going in opposite directions, and one is overwhelming the other such that the total death toll from any from hurricanes is going down. But that, that's got nothing to do with the fact that climate change is and will continue to make storms more intense. Right? Those are just two separate points. So that's the kind of thing I, I objected to in the way Schellenberger uh, framed some of these issues. The, the way he frames it, you could come away thinking that it's a myth that climate change makes hurricanes more severe, right? That would be sort of a, a plain way to read what he's saying there. And I think that's very misleading. And, and it's important to be as precise as we can about this. I'm also aware that Schellenberger is in, is in a tough position where to challenge anything about the climate change status quo, the level of precision required of him is going to be much higher than someone who's merely within the consensus uh, that, that, you know, climate change is bad and making everything worse. If, if you're going to voice that opinion, you're going to, you're going to be given pretty good leeway to say things inaccurately or to frame things misleadingly. Whereas you're, if you're Schellenberger challenging the status quo, one misstep is going to be framed as, wow, this guy is a, this guy is a hack and, and a pseudoscientist and so forth. So I'm sensitive to the position that he's in trying to challenge the status quo. 
Um, so I, I would be happy to have him on again and have him in conversation with a, a mainstream climate scientist. All right. So let's go to the next question. This one comes from Mick. And Mick asks, he says he is struck by a thought. Hearing critical race theory so many times mentioned, I realized that I never heard anyone raise the point that a theory, by definition, is something that has been proven scientifically. Would calling it critical race hypothesis be a more accurate description? And to that point, is it another example of the gaslighting nature of the movement that they named it theory, i.e. something that's hard to argue with? So critical race theory is, it's misnamed, or at least you could argue it's, it's misnamed in the same way that critical theory is misnamed. Neither one of these is a hypothesis that could be proven by facts. Critical race theory is much more like uh, utilitarianism or deontology in that it is, it's a set of concepts through which to view the pursuit of knowledge and how to act in the world. It's not something that could, that, that a scientist could go out into the field and either prove or disprove. It's something that a philosopher would have to argue for or against. Critical race theory is a philosophy. And, you know, it's a philosophy that is very closely related to relativism. It's anchored to the idea that there is no objective truth. There are no objective set of standards on which you can build a society. There are no race-neutral set of standards that you can create a society on. Because every value structure you adopt for society, by value structure I mean the laws we write, the way we divide legal from illegal, the way we divide beautiful from ugly, the the way we divide right from wrong, every value structure is inherently of the race that built the value structure. There's no such thing as a race-neutral value structure. And that we have a moral obligation to recognize that America is fundamentally based on a white value structure, not a race-neutral one. And that we essentially have to displace the white value structure with a black value structure. Or at the very least, black people should be allowed to live by a black value structure. This is, you know, this is related to relativism in that it denies the possibility of objectivity. It's not just saying we live in a biased society. If you read the, the, you know, original critical race theory texts, they're saying not only do we live in a biased society, we could not possibly live in an unbiased society. There's no such thing as an unbiased society. Every society is is permanently affected by the group of people that created it. Its values are permanently stamped to give an advantage to the group that built the society. In in our case, that's white Europeans, right? White Europeans built it, 
And so the very structure of society, including those things that seem totally race neutral, such as how we determine whether you graduate from high school, uh, the laws that, you know, the, the things we bar as illegal, all of these things are inflected with white supremacy. All of these things were created in a, in a way that made sense to benefit white Europeans. It, w- it wasn't built for black people. It wasn't built for Hispanics or Asians. And, and again, not only that, but there could not be a society that was not built by and for a particular group of people. The notion of colorblindness is not possible even in principle. So again, this is not a concept that could be proved empirically, right? There's no data you can collect to prove or disprove critical race theory any more than there's data you could collect to prove utilitarianism, uh, true or false. It's a theory that lives or, or dies based on whether it is conceptually coherent. And so, you know, I think what you have to realize with critical race theory is anything that denies objectivity or the possibility of objective truths runs into incoherence. Because critical race theory purports to be the very kind of value structure that it rules out as a possibility. Right? On the one hand, it says nothing could be true for everyone in every circumstance, regardless of race. There's no such thing as an objective, universal truth that transcends your belonging to a particular group. But at the same time, it says critical race theory itself is a universal philosophy. It's a philosophy you ought to accept as true regardless of whether you're white or black. Critical race theory itself claims to be capital T true, but it also rules out the possibility that anything can be capital T true. So this is the problem with all philosophies that, that bar, that prohibit the notion of objective truth. And there's a great book on this called The Last Word by the philosopher Thomas Nagel, which I highly recommend. All right. So let's go on to the next question. Next question here is from Brandon. Brandon asks, can a benign religious society that emphasizes a principle of consistent human redemption be an antidote to cancel culture. Yeah, so in in theory, a religion that puts forgiveness at the forefront and and it is widely believed by a group of people probably couldn't yeah, yeah, it really couldn't sustain a cancel culture at the same time. It would be a forgiveness culture. So so yeah, in, in theory that would make sense. In practice, you know, most religions that have been relevant in Western society in the past, let's just say 50 or 100 years, you know, in living memory, have made so many natural and unavoidable things, sins, that, you know, it's, you know, it's a little bit cynical in a way to say 
well, we're all about forgiveness. But then to make so many things sins to begin with, that shouldn't be sins, right? In a way, you're, you're, you're taking back with one hand what you give with the other. But if being gay is a sin, what does it matter that you have a culture of forgiveness, right? When you're creating, you're creating the circumstances for forgiveness to begin with artificially, right? If, if premarital sex is a sin, then you shouldn't be congratulated for forgiving me because it probably shouldn't have been a sin in the first place. In, in any case, there is, you know, there's a hypothetical religion and maybe even ones that exist in practice somewhere in the world or, or even in, in certain parts of America that puts forward forgiveness without any of the, any of the bad bits. And I think there are even, you know, as churches evolve and get rid of you know, certain antiquated and backwards notions, um, such as homophobia, I think they increasingly zero in on the useful parts of religion, like forgiveness and redemption. Right, as, it, as it shaves away all of the parts that we no longer need if we ever did, it increasingly becomes a religion that makes more and more sense. So, yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine a benignly religious society that emphasizes a principle of, of redemption. And I think, you know, I think there is also, from the secular world, there's something to be learned from the fact that most of the world's religions have had some concept of, of forgiveness. So that's what I would say about that. Steve, okay. Steve asks, can you give me some straightforward practical advice on how to best inoculate my 12-year-old from the woke identity politics currently infiltrating the curriculum at his school? Yeah, so th- there's no simple answer to this question. I think one thing I can recommend is to try to introduce your kids to as many diverse experiences as possible. Because when, when you're a kid, I think what you directly experience is probably going to trump what your teachers are telling you is true in school. So can you introduce your kids to many different people from many different cultures? Um, can your kids have relationships with people of other races so that they can have sort of practical experience navigating cultural differences and racial differences, like real actual first person experiencing experience meeting people from different places. So that if they're told in school that you'll never be able to understand my experience as an ex, well, they can think to themselves, I actually know a lot of people that would disagree with you about that, that are of the race you're talking about, right? You know, the more you experience the diverse realities of, of the, 
American and ultimately global social world, I think the more naturally you, you, you are inoculated from intersectional, the, the sort of simple intersectional narrative that you know, straight white men on top and trans brown women on the bottom. And that's pretty much all you need to know about privilege and luck in this world. So the more practical experience you have in the world, the less likely you are to come to that narrative. So that's what, that's one thing I would say. Okay. So Paul asks, I'm reading Winning the Race by John McWhorter and noted his rather strong opinion about rap culture and its glorification. You seem to be enamored with rap and hip hop and also an admirer of McWhorter. Are your views different on rap than hip hop? And if so, why? Uh, so I'm I'm going to assume what he's asking there is, do I disagree with McWhorter's take on, on hip-hop? And yeah, I, I read Winning the Race years ago. Um, I don't remember exactly what he says about rap, but I've heard him talk about rap in, in other instances. And I, I know McWhorter is actually a fan of hip-hop. And I'm not exactly sure what his critique of it is there, but what I can say is that you know, first of all, when he was writing that book, I, th- I think gangster rap was still probably a larger slice of the pie and a more recent phenomenon than it is today. You know, today you just have whole very popular subgenres of rap that, that include very little, if anything, about the glorification of violence. Um, and of course, you still have a lots of rap that that glorifies violence completely. My position on that has always been that it's it's a product. You know, the, the the arrow of causation goes in one way, but not the other. I think for the most part, people are rapping about violence that they've seen or lived through, and that the violence itself is causing the rap to be violent. It, it's, it's generally not the, the violence in the songs that is causing the violence in real life, right? So that's generally been my, my view on the relationship between violence and, and rap. And I think sometimes people draw that arrow of, of causation the wrong way. All right, so it's been one hour. And I will call that a day. Thank you so much for submitting the questions. You can submit them on text and you can also submit them on Instagram. And I will see you guys next time on the next Q&A on Conversations with Coleman. Thank you. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.